Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Elena Rueda, CEO and founder of Gama Health, transforming the future of precision contraception. So Elena, today in most countries, if I'm a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl and I go to the OBGYN for the first time, um, whether it's for a general checkup, acne, period pain, or headache, they're going to prescribe me oral contraceptives. Why is that a bad thing? Well, um, for starters, I think it's probably important to kind of contextualize um, what happens at the moment for a 16 or 14-year-old girl. Um, I think contraception is not only used um, in the world for birth control reasons. It can be used for treating hormonal-based conditions such as endometriosis or PCOS, for example. It can also be used for acne um, and a lot of other underlying like endocrine issues. And so um, a lot of the time when women do go very early to the OBGYN or to their doctor, um, there's a discussion that is being had whether, you know, you want to take something to support you with these symptoms and these other conditions, but at the same time, you know, help you with birth control. Um, and so actually, yeah, in general, OBGYNs and doctors do prescribe um, the most common form, which is the oral combined contraceptive pill. Uh, in the UK, it's microgynon 30. Um, and this is usually because it's actually the, the form of contraception which um, has the least um, blood clot risk for the popu at a population level. Um, so it's the safest to prescribe, but also most effective at treating, um, at basically preventing pregnancy for the majority of the population. And, um, but yeah, then when we start to think, you know, general population, there's obviously outliers um, and there's people that don't react the same way. And so um, we're seeing a lot more and more that, you know, women are having different symptoms, reacting very differently. And that is not, you know, part of the way that um, contraception is being prescribed at the moment. It's not being personalized to the individual. Um, it starts off in this trial and error process um, until basically you as a woman stand up or as a user stand up and say, actually, I want to try something else or this is not working for me. We don't have that first line of screening being done um, to make sure that, you know, we are making sure it's personalized for the individual. And when I was speaking to Anna from Impli the other week, um, she was mentioning about how we give the same dose of contraceptives to, you know, a 14-year-old girl and a 40-year-old woman. So absolutely. And you can imagine, obviously, when you're 14 years old, you haven't really developed your hormonal, um, you know, endocrine system to its full capacity at that age. You're still changing. Your body is changing. And so sometimes really getting you know, wrong doses um, or really high doses at that age could be quite detrimental. And I think smaller, smaller women, smaller bodies um, can, you know, metabolize estrogen and progesterone very differently, but also your genetics and, and other underlying conditions that you may have. So it's super important that we we do take these things into account. Um, and unfortunately for many women, the side effects could be quite detrimental, which leads them to having a very bad first experience, which can have a really lo like long time, like long time effect on just their relationship with contraception in general. Um, so really getting that first experience and that first appointment right is, is really important and educating the women around the topic as well. Because this is essentially a medication that women are on for, let's say, the majority of uh, their, yeah, their fertile, life. yeah, reproductive life. Yeah. Um, but the way that it's done today, um, from my understanding, is um, a lot of trial and error. 
Um, so you get given one line of treatment. If it doesn't work, then there's a second line. If it doesn't work, then there's a third line. And um, it is this randomness that you're trying to fix. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, one thing is also just how how comfortable certain OBGYNs and practitioners are in prescribing different forms of contraception, um, but also what is available in that country, you know, what is accessible. Not all brands are available, um, especially, in, I mean, in the UK, for example, we have the NHS. So there's certain brands and formulations that are approved by the NHS. And if you want something different, you need to source that mm-hmm. elsewhere. But um, yeah, it is mainly a trial and error. Uh, in, on average, a woman will go um, and try maybe between three to five different methods before finding one that is suitable. Um, but this could essentially just be because, you know, their their preferences in life change. Like at one mo- moment, they don't want something in their body. Um, in another moment of their life, they don't mind getting an injection or an implant. Um, they may have different symptoms come up at different phases of their, you know, reproductive journey. And so we need to adapt to these um, changes and to this like personalization. Um, so really putting everyone through the same line of, of treatment is not always the best. Um, and we do see a lot of women coming back into the industry, into the, um, into the consultations, just returning because they're not finding the right forms that fit them. One thing I, I've always found is um, uh, quite bizarre, right, about this entire... I guess, experiment. Uh, It's almost like an experiment because we're giving half the population um, this medication on a consistent basis. But um, these hormones that you give people really do impact mood um, and even to some extent decision making, um, right? So um, what are your thoughts on this like entire um, notion of like, you know, you you start at a certain age, let's say like... um, 14 taking this um, contraception, it it causes a a different balance of hormones in your body. And then you have to come off of it um, when you want to conceive. And it changes um, almost the way that you process and think. Um, And a good example of this is, um, you know, this whole case study that is, I guess, going viral online about how women who um, meet their uh, potential future husbands on contraception then come off of it um, when they're married and um, are no longer attracted, right? Um, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on like the broader issue um, and, and these cases that we're seeing today? Yeah, I mean... With any exogenous hormone treatment or endocrine, you know, when you when you mess with the endocrine system, there's always going to be a side effect. So mm-hmm. I think one thing that we're really excited for in the future is is seeing further development happening on non-hormonal forms of contraception and engineering around non-hormonal forms of contraception, because I think that will really help solve the issue for um, the women who really do not react well with mm-hmm. contraception and especially the hormonal um, compounds. Um, for many, actually, the majority of the products in the market are hormone-based. So if you actually cannot take hormone-based, you're really limited. It, it seems like you have millions of options and 200 brands, but actually, um, if you can't take progesterone, you can't take estrogen or derivatives of that, um, you're actually quite limited to very little um, you know, options. And I think um, the broader issue is really being able to screen and identify who can metabolize, who reacts well to these hormones, or who at least can tolerate the side, of, the side effects um, well, and who, like which people cannot. Because 
Um, for some, it actually really does support them. And I think getting the right yeah. product to the right person, the right drug to the right person is fundamental. And also, you know, this, this hypeness of um, kind of <laughs> these stories, sometimes correct, sometimes not correct, coming into the market. Um, women being afraid of, you know, not taking birth control because of, you know, um, blood clot risk. And really birth control can support a lot of women um, as well. And I think the power is now in, in using, you know, the latest research and the latest science to be able to, to say, hey, who's, who's at risk, who's not, to then really start bringing that intervention into clinical practice. So t talk me through what DEMA Health is doing, because I, I think a lot of uh, what we've been talking about is maybe framing the problem a bit. Um, but how, how does DEMA solve the problem? Yeah, so um, at DEMA Health, we are developing medical screening um, tests and tools that can allow clinicians, but also women patients, um, to be able to identify essentially which contraceptive option is best suited for for her um, or for them. And we do this by screening your medical history, your preferences, your past experience. We've developed a medical algorithm um, to be able to do that. Um, and then also we're developing a genetic test, which is the exciting part where we bring precision medicine and we look at variables and variants in your genes that can help us understand, do you metabolize estrogen fast or slow, progesterone fast or slow? Are you more likely to gain weight? What, um, what is your migraine risk? What is your blood clot risk? All very important things that a GP or an OBGYN may ask you in your appointment. But as a 14-year-old girl, you may have absolutely no idea, um, you know, if you do have a risk of blood clot. So instead of kind of guessing it, we, we test for it um, and really try to support and, and at least bring that in line, um, remove that risk um, at a first instant with the, with the clinician. So you, um, you do a genetic test plus um, screening other factors as well to help match women to specific contraceptives. Exactly. Um, and I think we briefly spoke about this, but the DNA component um, becomes important when you're looking at things like how do people respond to hormones and um, how do they metabolize different drugs um, and molecules, and what are the side effects that you might have from that speed of um, metabolizing Absolutely. these components? Absolutely. And I can give you an example there. So in our chief medical officer, Dr. Aaron Lazarowitz, and his research, he, um, he looked at one very specific gene called the ESR1 gene. So it's the estrogen receptor. Um, and he measured, you know, uh, the differences in weight gain with women on the implant. And with um, women who had a variant, uh, a different, you know, mutation or a different variant of that gene um, compared to the general population, the most common gene, actually gained 14 kilos on average wow. um, of weight compared to like two to three um, of the average population. So it just comes to show how, you know, really our hormones and everything, you know, from the, how we synthesize them, how we have proteins that circulate, how they bind to our bodies. Um, has a huge impact on the amount of hormone we have, you know, running around our bodies um, on a day to day. And so if you're someone who cannot release and cannot get rid of that, um, you are more likely to suffer from certain um, symptoms and side effects. And so really knowing that information early on is a key piece that you as a doctor can then share with the patient. You can say you are most likely to gain weight on this form or you're more, more likely to have a migraine or, you know, 
not experience symptoms in that one. And then that's a choice that you help empower your patient with. Um, you help them make the decision as well by giving them that informed information. Yeah, and that could significantly improve quality of life. You know, Absolutely. 14 kilograms versus like three is a lot. Absolutely. And everyone's different, right? Like maybe there are people who want to gain that weight. Maybe there are people who absolutely want to avoid that weight in the same way that um, people may not, um, you know, find it so intolerable to have a headache every once in a while. Mm. If it means that, you know, they're heavy bleeding or they're, they're really, you know, heavy pain can, can be removed or can be avoided. So it's, it's really finding the fine balance and helping women make that risk um, kind of judgment. And why is this a company now versus five years ago, 10 years ago? Like what has changed in the world that allows you to do what you're doing? Well, for starters, um, you know, accessibility to genetic sequencing. Mm. Um, I think we spoke about this before, but, you know, sequencing only 10 years ago, I mean, 20 years ago would cost a whole genome sequencing would cost around 100 million um, mm. to do, which is absolutely unobtainable. Um, now we've actually managed to get, you know, sequence, like genome sequence sub $200, $100, which is super exciting because it means that finally we can bring, um, you know, this type of testing into the, the day to day, into the clinic. Um, and I think it's only going to get cheaper in the future. And so utilizing, you know, that technology and, and the knowledge we have of, um, of this type of testing research now is going to be kind of where we're heading into, into the future with precision medicine. So. Um, Interesting. So it's now a million times cheaper. A million times cheaper, yes. <laughs> a million times cheaper to sequence your genome, which means now we can improve the accessibility um, of, of this type of um, service, which may have been um, not as accessible to general population. Um, and, and I guess the second thing, um, I wonder how COVID has impacted that as well. Yeah, I think, of course, everyone now has heard of, you know, genetic sequencing, variants, um, how, how useful, you know, it is to actually be able to sequence um, at speed. Um, and so I think actually just the key message and the way that, you know, in general, the population reacts to the word genetic sequencing or sequencing is... Um, yeah is less frowned upon, it's less scary. Um, so I think from an educational perspective, the general population has been educated a lot during COVID in terms of you know, new technologies um, and what that means for general population health um, and health outcomes. And I think people are, understand that you know, genetics can support in precision medicine, which can support in more precise um, you know, treatments. And I think COVID has really not only sped up the pipeline and, and helped, you know, make just lab work go faster and, and um, regulatory hurdles become less um, less of a restriction. But also, um, like now that we're doing our, um, our screening and we're doing our study, we're having no problem in recruiting women because people know what genetic sequencing is. They're not scared about it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a topic that you can kind of talk a lot more with, um, with the general public and they understand where you're coming from. You don't need a PhD anymore <laughs> to understand. Um, kind of what genetics means in the context of yeah. health. And, um, and this idea, it was kind of birthed from a combination, I guess, of um, you being at Merck previously um, and then, and then uh, from, from Imperial. 
Um, but but talk me through like what was the journey to arrive here? Because I know you were sitting on the idea for some time before yeah. you you really um, went full full on in. Yeah, I think um, it did start kind of when I was. 16, 15, um, I went to my doctor just to see if they could prescribe something for my hormonal acne. Um, and they gave me the pill, you know, they gave, as we kind of talked about, um, it's kind of the first line usually, um, for things like that. And, um, it actually, I went home, I started taking this pill and, and, and I started to feel really, really horrible. Like I started gaining weight. I wasn't feeling myself. I noticed like a huge change all of a sudden. Um, and then kind of months later, um, well, not only did I decide, okay, I'm not going to take this anymore. I, I felt like something was wrong. But then months later, I found out that this pill was actually banned in a number of countries because of the high like blood clot risk. Um, and I was at that point, you know, I was I was looking to study science and this just completely shook me. I was like, how can, you know, you give something to a 16 year old the same way you could just prescribe like paracetamol? Um, and the risk is as high as like, you know, you could have a blood clot into your brain and potentially, you know, pass, you know, die. Um, this was just like shocking. So I think that idea just stuck with me for while I was doing my undergraduate, while I was doing my um, just my studies and then living with six girls at university. We all had a very crazy experience again on hormonal birth control and birth control options and everyone was reacting so differently. So. I just started every time getting more and more interested in this topic and understanding like, why is there no better way of just finding the right person and, the, and then prescribing them the right drug? We have options and we have the science and we have the tools in other areas of health, right? Um, but the women's health industry is just lagging. Um, so I started doing my research and I found you know, Dr. Aaron Lazarevitz, he's an OBGYN. He was doing actively recruiting for trials in this space and really trying to like, bring precision medicine into the industry of women's health. And so that really inspired me to, um, to say, right, how can we actually make this accessible? And so that's where the digital component of our company comes in. You know, you make things accessible if you can, you can bring you know, technology, SaaS platform, um, and then ideally, you know, um, service it to multiple um, stakeholders, clinicians, um, labs, um, and or the women themselves so that they can use that research and that um those insights to to better find the contraceptive that they're looking for. What? Why do you think there is a gap in women's health? I think just. I mean, this is a commonly talked topic nowadays, um, but we've just not really been using women in trials for many years. We haven't recruited for women in their reproductive years. Usually, menopausal women have been used in trials um, or very small samples, and I think so this huge lag of collecting the symptom data, collecting um, just really important data points that we're now seeing um, and we are now collecting just hasn't previously existed. So even innovating in this space, you kind of need to start from scratch. You need to collect that data yourself. I mean, if you all just do a simple exercise of going on PubMed and just typing in women's health or contraception, you're probably going to get like 300 search items come back. Whereas you put something like oncology or you put something like, um, rheumatoid, like rheumatoid arthritis, and you're going to see the huge difference difference um, in just how many publications and search items you get in the field of women's health. And I think it just starts from there. Unfortunately, we we started looking and investigating this field just 20, 30 years too late. So we're just catching up, um, to be honest. And and let's say 
genetic testing for contraception is one use case. Um, the reason I find this interesting is there was this huge controversy um, with 23andMe um, in, in, in the Asian community, essentially, where um, a lot of people who are Asian would take 23andMe and it would just say, like, you are 99% Asian. Um, and so people would start posting their result online being like, great, like, thanks, I paid like 300 bucks and I'm 99% Asian. Already knew that. Cool. Um, and then and then founders like the founder of Circle DNA came out with um the, the Asian version, right? Um, so, so a genetic test that would tell you a breakdown of like, where in Asia am I from? And like, what are the, the different, um, components of being Asian? I wonder if, um, outside of just contraception, there's a use case here where we're saying, let's look more into the genetics of women. Um, let's look at this group of individuals. Like, what are the different things they'll care about? Kind of like in 23andMe and Circle DNA, they tell you, um, you know, you sleep, uh, you're, you're more likely to sleep below seven hours, seven to eight hours, nine plus, for example. I wonder if you, you are envisioning, um, something like this where you almost look at DNA as a whole, um, and look at what are the different phenotypes in women that women will care about. I mean, there is, even 23andMe has recently and started to, kind of incorporate more and more like female specific um, insights like ovarian health and you know um, and there is a lot of research going into longevity menopause um, so absolutely I think you're totally right like the data on genetics and just genetic solutions in general is just as good as what was fed into you know fed into the research and so if you're only investigating a certain population you're going to have really great results um on that population but you're really going to exclude another population as a result and i think um there is a lot more i think data that can be coming in and feeding you know um insights into the women's health space it's definitely kicking off with the fertility um world um genetic testing is quite commonly done but um, but for specifically dema health like do you see do you see um a use case outside of just contraception where you could use um what you're doing in contraception yeah, um, yeah, yeah. for other absolutely like mm-hmm. women's health panel um essentially and i think if you can know how how your body reacts to hormones you can support women making decisions in their fertility journey, but also in their menopause journey down the line. There's so much that can be, um, you know, transferred and transferable. And um, yeah, we're starting with contraception, but we're definitely not ending there. <laughs> and and what's the kind of wider vision um, then with DEMA? So um, we can start with like what, what you're currently targeting. So contraception um, and what do you see like in the next year, two years, five years, um, in terms of what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, so first achievement is really bringing, you know, precision medicine to women's health, which is just not, you'd be surprised, but there's not that many companies um, going into the field or really, you know, innovating there. Um, I think being able to start really identifying, like, even hormonal concentrations on individuals, like, instead of just having these set standard 30 mg, 2 mg, you know, you're really able to, at first instance, provide um, the right concentration of hormones for that individual. And you can only do that um, if you do the right tests um, and, you know, and and you understand um, that individual's predispositions and just hormonal metabolism. Um, But I think in the future, just really supporting in better drug development, you know, supporting and understanding are there certain populations or women or, or individuals that are being 
that these methods are just not working for them um, at all. And that, you know, maybe pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies have not been able to identify or haven't identified. And I think that's um, really exciting to be able to play a role in that, to be able to, to identify, you know, underrepresented groups and, and potentially support the industry in developing better solutions for them. Um, but also, I think I mentioned this briefly before, but trying to find new ways of, you know, um, developing birth control um, and like, you know, mucus engineering, um, things that don't just necessarily use our hormones because um, we as a company are just, are, we're limited by, you know, the products that are in the market. So we can only recommend what's in the market, but if the market products are not optimal or they're not, you know, they could be better, we're limited as well in, in how, what we can recommend. So um, really excited to see kind of the, the development happening and also the future of maybe male contraception too and the development of that because a lot of the, the questions we ask when we screen is also like, it's a conversation between you and your partner as well. It's not, yeah. what do you want to take for your body? But it's, it's your lifestyle. It's everything around you. Are you an athlete? Do you have, a, you know, do you have a partner? Do you need something that is, um, you know, like you take every day are you forgetful do you don't want to take it every day so it's it's understanding that you know your contraceptive journey is not just your body but also your environment and um and so yeah being able to then you know develop dama or say actually now you're doing like a couple's test or you're doing like yeah. would be amazing that we can also recommend you know other methods not just put the burden on on, on the woman so I think there's there's many avenues, but I think there's huge room for, for improvement in the space and development. Um, but I think it starts by collecting real world data on the symptoms and and um, and what the and basically how women are reacting and how um, people assigned female at birth are reacting. So we can we can do better for them. So building a picture of basically um, the key negative symptoms that women experience today um, by um, collecting essentially their insights plus their DNA. Um, yeah. and then you can basically work out, okay, like, um, these women who have this effect tend to have this gene, um, and the others have another gene. Um, and then once you've built up this base, um, platform of data, Absolutely. um, I guess there's a lot you can do with that. Yeah. You were men mentioning, um, mucus based. Yeah, I mean mucus engineering. So like, engineering. what does that mean? Yeah. So essentially, there's a there's a company in 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 Copenhagen called Circle, and they're developing a contraceptive method that's non-hormonal, where it will um, essentially engineer, you know, the mucus in a woman's um, uterus, so that it can create like a essentially like a sperm bridge, you right? But like with your, you know, but using the science of like mucus engineering. So how does it work? Do you take this long term or like, do you just take I it think like before? We have to ask. The, we have so to ask like it back. builds like a, a mucus layer in your uterus. Yeah. Interesting. And just finding like creative and innovative ways that we can, we can, um, you know, create contraceptive methods. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right. Like there's also epigenetics, there's proteomics. So the environment, um, and we can definitely, um, it's exciting to yeah. see how we could maybe utilize, you know, um, omnics in general and um, different genetic testing to be able to predict even better um, the more research we do uh, around this area. But um, yeah, we need to start somewhere. So we're building that pipeline uh, of variants for contraception to start with.
Um, so, so the idea, I guess, is to move away from hormones ultimately, right? Not so, not really move away from hormones, but be able to identify who, who needs these hormones and who can avoid them. Because I think like you rightly put, it's kind of like standard care where every kind of 16 year old will be put on hormones. But, um, I think we need to ask ourselves, like, ultimately, is that the best, you know, we can do for these young women? Um, there's so many people that because of hormones can live a really, um, you know, better quality of life because they can knock it out of bed or if they don't have their contraceptive option as like a first line, you know, um, treatment for their conditions. So I think we are by no means saying hormones are bad or anything. And I think that's something that, you know, we really push against, but it's understanding who is going to react better and who is it going to help um, and who is it maybe just not um, so that we can just make sure that we're treating the right people um, because this is similarly being done in other areas of, of you know, um, of health. And um, we don't just put everyone on the same treatments. Um, there's usually screening tests and, and tests that, that test towards this. But um, so, yeah, I think it's just more than anything identifying um, so that you may work really well with hormones. I may work terribly with hormones. And it's something that we should be aware of when we're quite young to then make these decisions because they all compile. They compile in how we um, go in our day to day, the decisions we make. Um, and sometimes you take months of, if not years to realize that you're in the spiral of, <laughs> oh, this, this wasn't working for me. And I just realized this. Um, so, And I guess that kind of underpins this whole precision medicine movement that's happening um, uh, across the world yeah. of um, how do we make medication less dirty? Yeah, yeah. I think also just a lot of, you know, resources are wasted, you know, people coming back into the system. Um, we know that primary health doctors are really uh, struggling right now in the NHS. And so how can we help also, you know, the providers? How can we make sure that we can triage, you know, the right people? Like this person absolutely needs an implant or, you know, an IUD, whereas um, maybe these people absolutely, there's a risk, there's a contraindication. Let's, they don't even need to come into the clinic. You can see someone else who needs to be seen, like, with more priority. Do you, do you know the cost numbers of how much like costs it, uh, you know, how much money we're burning on people just being prescribed the wrong? Well, at least like 20 to 30% of contraceptives just go to the bin. Mm. Unfortunately, these numbers as well are not being collected because, mm. um, you know, if you discontinue, it, you don't really let your doctor know. You just stop taking. So it's one of those um, areas as well where just the data, again, is missing. You know, we're not collecting. A woman isn't going back and saying, hey, I've stopped taking my third, you know, month and I've thrown the rest out. So um, it's it's quite a difficult space to navigate in terms of statistics. Um, but in the UK at the moment, like there is a waiting list of like six months to get an IUD insertion. So if you want to get, you know, an implant or an IUD, um, but you need to wait six months, what are your other options? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of forcing you to say, well, I, I, I'm going to probably have to take what's like available to me because the consequence of that is, is an unwanted pregnancy in some cases. And um, so I think like really being able to, to, to make that space in the healthcare system and also like, you know, allocate the resources more effectively is going to be really important. 
um, so that we aren't having, you know, huge amounts of um, unwanted pregnancies or, um, yeah, abortions as a result because women have no options or feel like they don't have access or options. Because um, in some cases, the side effects are quite bad that women would rather just not go there again. Um, and that's quite sad to hear. Um, yeah, and um, I, I know you're operating now mainly in the UK, but do you see like... Um kind of global differences right now in contraception, especially in the U.S. where, yeah. um, you know, some regulatory changes are happening. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., obviously, like kind of developing contraception and um, is is more government led. Um, and but in some cases now, because of state legislations and, you know, other political reasons, um, it is harder for a lot of women to maybe get access to the same forms as, as originally. So. But I think telehealth and, and, and different providers are being really creative in the way that they're giving accessibility to contraception to women. It's also very interesting how you see patterns in like different populations just preferring different methods mm -hmm. um, in different regions. And that's also really interesting to kind of investigate, understand why. Um, so we, we knew from some of our research, for example, in, in the U.S. in a certain region, um, there was a very high like Puerto Rican community that just wanted implants. And it's, and you know, so yeah. it kind of gives us this insight of women talk to other women and talk. And, and so like word of mouth is huge when it comes to your birth control. And so that's why getting the right thing to the right person is also very important because bad stories, you know, spread like wildfire mm -hmm. and the consequences of that at like health economic and population level could be quite high if, if you're having a lot of women, you know, having to abort because of unwanted pregnancies, because of what they're hearing. Um, and so we're also trying to really drive like that education and helping people understand that um, her experience or their experience is not yours um, mm. for numerous reasons. And this is why. And let us help you understand them. Interesting. So the precision component also um supports this misinformation that happens absolutely absolutely there's there's people out there who unfortunately become pregnant um on different forms of contraception and they don't know why um and you know it's a 98 99 efficacy um on on the sheet you know it's, it's supposed to be like one of the best forms of contraception but they become pregnant um and we're starting to realize that it's things like having the clearance gene, the way you, you metabolize or not, means that actually for that individual, it's not 98%, you know, um, effective. It's, it's, it's less. Um, and so absolutely, these like one-off cases actually are more common than we know, but we, um, we're not taking that into account. Um, and maybe they're not reported. And then, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'll, I'll, Finish off with one question, but if you had to leave the world with one impact uh, with Dema Health, what would that be? To bring precision medicine into the field of women's health. Um, I think this is something that our team and, and the work we're doing is um, really like driving us um, towards. Women's health has been underrepresented for many years, and I think using technology, using genetics can now start to really make a huge difference and speed it up. Um, and, it, and also just being able to leave the world knowing that women can go into an OBGYN clinic or a primary health clinic and have the right information, the right data on their bodies, um, and just feel empowered and understand the implications of these decisions. Because... 
contraception is not something you take as a one-off when you have a headache or you know when you're feeling low it's 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 a something you take for years you know during the majority of your reproductive life as a woman and it has downstream implications depending on the route you take so really trying to help give the right tools and education so that women can can feel empowered um, and not leave it purely to chance um, so really eliminate and eradicate the guesswork um, because there are tools and research and, and people like ourselves that are trying to to help um, bring you know that precision um, into the field of women's health forward um, so that women don't have to suffer unnecessarily <laughs>